I'd like to ask you to open to Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14. I'll give you a moment to get there and get settled. When I was a teenager, I did something to get myself into a lot of trouble. I got baptized. Seriously, though, I I did that without thinking through exactly what I was doing. Uh, now, there was some youth group peer pressure, and I wanted to please my parents and, and so on. But But then I went through a lot of spiritual confusion and frustration, and that lasted for almost a decade. And the reason why is because deep down I really didn't know what I had been called to. Some of you might have similar stories, especially if you grew up in the church. Or maybe you were misled. Maybe you heard of a Jesus who you thought wanted to give you an easy life and make you very, very happy. Maybe make you very rich. Or maybe you just wanted to avoid hell. If people are to actually follow Jesus and give their lives, they have to know exactly where Jesus is asking them to go. And in today's text, at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is going to do that. Now, he's just lit up the religious elites. He's told them quite plainly, they will not be part of his feast. They can't be his disciples as they are choosing to live. And so now, Jesus turns to the crowds, not the elites, but the common people. In fact, the people that the elite them, elites themselves are, are trying to win. But Jesus is not going to make any attempt to flatter them. In fact, his criteria for discipleship is actually framed around three instances of this phrase. If this, then you can't be my disciple. That's how high he's setting the bar. I've framed the outline around those three instances of the phrase. So, so following your outline, here's what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. One, a disciple has to prefer Jesus above all else. Number two, a disciple has to crucify his own life or her own life. And point three, a disciple has to know that holding on to anything that is holding back from absolute, total, 100% allegiance will cost them everything. Holding on to anything will cost them everything. And in conclusion, trying to get to God by any other way than this way that Jesus is saying is worthless. You must be a disciple, and it will cost you everything. So if total devotion or a clear understanding of calling was or is a battle for you, my hope is that today's sermon at least makes that more clear, and at most saves you an enormous amount of trouble. Let's look at verses 26 and 27 together. Now, great crowds accompanied him, 
And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So the first thing a disciple must do is prefer Jesus. Let me, let me set the scene of what's going on here. We have to understand the culture to know how this would have landed, a statement like this. I mean, it already lands kind of hard to us, but how would they have heard it? At this time and in this place, family connections were absolutely everything. I mean, if you were to go to a dinner party at this time, people wouldn't break the ice by saying, what do you do for a living? They would ask you who your parents were. And that that kind of support and stability was, was mutual, as older families would often live with and be cared for by younger generations. There weren't any, there wasn't any sort of assisted living. Um, and in the East, this is actually still largely the case. Um, that's actually one reason why places like Italy suffered so much during the coronavirus out- outbreak on such a large scale. So even despite that, for Jesus to, to downplay the family and especially bring in the word hate in even conjunction with the family, that would have seemed like quite a hard sell to a crowd of people. But what did he mean by the word hate? I mean, is Jesus here really telling people to hate their families, their wives, their kids, themselves? I want to show you from the text why it's it's not that bad or it's not that simple, but it's actually much harder. Scripture interprets scripture. I want you to consider these words from Jesus so far in the book of Luke as we compare it to what he's saying here. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 says this, But I say to you who hear, this is Jesus who's saying, Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And then in chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord of God, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So why is he telling you to love in one instance and to hate in the other? Well, in context, Jesus can't be saying that what it means to be a disciple is to just hate everybody and to just go love Jesus. That would go pretty much against the entire Bible. And this is especially true and should be especially considered by you, the Western reader. Well, maybe not the ranks, but the uh, Western reader who's generally so individualistic that you might read a verse like this that says, hate your family. And you're like, great idea. Now, Jesus, I think, is telling them where their priorities have to be. Maybe you've heard the phrase, compared to our love for Jesus, our love for everything else should almost look like hate. Maybe you've heard that phrase. I think that's in the ballpark of what we're talking about here. But still, 
The phrase hate, especially attached to the family, might sound harsh. So I want you to consider this example. I want you to consider, hypothetically, a child who doesn't like to listen when a parent calls them. Try your best to imagine that scenario. I know it's hard. And the parent knows that if the child doesn't learn to submit to them, they are certainly not going to submit to their Heavenly Father. In other words, if that parent really does prefer God, then they're going to teach that child to prefer them and to prefer God, and they're probably going to teach them multiple times a day for many years. That parent demonstrates a preference for God over the immediate comfort of just letting the child be reckless, which in the short term would probably be easier. Now, in that moment, I think we'd agree that the parent is loving the child. Though, to the child, doesn't it kind of look like hate? I hope that begins to kind of clarify things. It's not that a disciple hates people or even hates themselves. On the contrary, and even thinking generally, it would seem that the best way to love people is actually to prefer Jesus over them. But what happens if you prefer them over Jesus? I want you to consider a few more examples with me as we think of preference. Imagine a young adult who's torn. They've decided they would really like to serve the Lord by entering the mission field. And so they tell their parents, and it goes over like a lead balloon. And that young person is so afraid of displeasing their parents that they give up. Or I want you to imagine a husband and wife who are so needy for one another's approval, they prefer one another so much over the Lord, or they're just so busy overcommitting themselves because they hate saying no to people that they just kind of abandon their relationship with God. Devotion stop, prayer stops, and life is just busy. Or I want you to imagine an older parent who's so sad that their children have rejected Jesus that they themselves falter and begin to turn away. Now, according to the text, as hard as it sounds, these people can't be disciples. That might sound harsh, but here's all that Jesus is saying in this text. If you prefer them, if you prefer blank, you can't prefer me. There's only room on the throne for one person. And Jesus is saying that if you're my disciple, it has to be me. So you love your family. I mean, even if you grew up in a hard home, you stand ready to forgive. And you stand ready to support them through hard times. And you do the same with wives and children and such. But all of this is through the filter of loving them how God loves us. It's a submissive, painful love. It's, it's much harder than just deciding to hate people. Much harder. 
So given that, do you think the narrow door that Jesus is saying we have to walk through, do you think that maybe seems a little bit more narrow now? Could you imagine how the crowd would take this? Jesus then goes on and maybe gives us a little bit more of the physical manifestation of the life that he's calling you to as you prefer him. In other words, this is how it's going to play out even more on a horizontal level if we choose to vertically prefer Jesus. Let's look at verse 27. Here's the second cannot. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Friends, the second thing Jesus is telling us that his disciples must do is to crucify their lives. Now, let me set the scene here. Is Jesus saying that you need to carry a physical cross? I mean, some of his disciples would. Crucifixion was the preferred method at this time for Rome to kind of send a message to the opposition to make examples of them. I mean, the crowd might have actually seen one on the way to this sermon. But what if I told you that Jesus, again, actually has something harder in mind than that? So I want you to consider the cross itself. The cross was a symbol of shame and death. And to Jesus, of course, it was a symbol of his total preference and total submission to his father. I mean, quite literally, Jesus in the garden, right before carrying his own cross, preferred his father by saying, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus, with this very vivid example, is saying that your life is a physical manifestation of the crucifixion. A physical manifestation of point one, preferring Jesus by then putting your own life to death. So, what Jesus is saying is not that you need to die for him. He's saying that you need to live for him and then you need to die for him. It's so much bigger than I think we tend to assume. You submit your plans, your dreams, your hopes, your career aspiration. Put it this way. If you're young or even if you're look, the type of person to look down the road, whatever life you might expect to be coming, you have to be willing to put that to death. And you have to be willing to follow Jesus to the grave. Now, did that door just get a little bit more narrow for you? I mean, let's back up a moment and let's consider how the crowds must be taking all this. I mean, I'm in media. What kind of marketing strategy is this? If you were making a brochure for your church, would you put this stuff on the front? Here's an excerpt from a commentary that that Peter shared with me for a bit of levity, but also a bit of clarity in terms of why this is actually an amazing thing that Jesus is doing. It's not just a drill sergeant 
yelling at people. This is hope. Here we go. I want you to imagine a politician, imagine that, (laughs) standing on a a podium addressing a crowd, and he says, if you're going to vote for me, okay, you're voting to lose your home, and you're voting to lose your family, and you're asking for higher taxes, and you're asking for lower wages, and you're deciding in favor of losing everything that makes you comfortable. So come on, who's going to vote for me? What would you say to that person? I mean, the crowd wouldn't even bother heckling him or throwing tomatoes at him. They would just be confused. Why would anyone try to advertise himself in that way? But the commentator says, isn't that what Jesus is doing in this passage? You want to be my disciple, do you? Well, in in that case, you have to get ready to learn how to hate your family and, and give up your possessions and get ready for a nasty death. Hardly the way, as we say, to win friends and influence people. But, and this is the important part, guys, instead of a politician, consider the leader of a great expedition who is forging a way through high and dangerous mountain passes to bring urgent medical aid to villagers who are cut off from the rest of the world and would otherwise die. And so he says, if you want to come any further, you'll have to leave your packs behind. Because from here on, the path is too steep. And you'd better send your last postcards home, because this is a dangerous route. And it's very likely that several of us will not make it back. We can understand that. We may not like the sound of it. But we can see why it would make sense. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is more like the second person than the first. He's more like the the mountain guide than the politician. When there's an urgent task to be done, as there now is, then everything else, including one's own life and preference, must be put at risk for the sake of the kingdom because of how good it is. Does that make sense? Does that help? Because here's how it, here's how it plays out then. Jesus is requiring you to prefer him and to abandon your little dreams and your little lives because to be honest, his plans are way better than yours. Jesus is calling his disciples to, to wade into murky, dangerous waters in love because that's where he is going. Now, I'm going to give you some general examples of what this might look like, and then one very specific current example. Here's a general example. I want you to imagine a young person who wants to get married and go into the missions field, but tied to his conversion, he decides to be open to give up marriage, even if his parents disapprove. Tied to his conversion decides to be open to giving that up. I want you to imagine young parents who decide to have children or adopt rather than living an easy life of luxury 
or convenience. I want you to imagine an older person who, instead of fading away, prays for his wandering child, and then mentors local youth or shepherds younger children in the church so that they have an opportunity to know and love Jesus. Now, how many of those are easy paths? But you get it, right? You're moving towards the murkiness, towards the difficulty, because of your preference for God. You're crucifying your life. I'm not saying you can't have dreams or you can't make plans. I'm not saying you're throwing darts at a board, but you're making plans, but you're holding them loosely. Okay, here's one example that is maybe a little bit more murky. It's a current example. Culturally speaking, there's a lot going on right now, isn't there? There's a lot being said specifically in response to a police officer who has killed a man named George Floyd. Now, in the midst of all the arguing and all the advice, what does being a disciple of Jesus apply? How does it apply? What does it mean in this scenario according to this text? I'm going to move carefully here because our church, quite frankly, hasn't touched on subjects like these um, very much. And this is a very, very hot subject right now. And because of that, there are many, many, many suggestions out there of what we should be doing right now, all based on, in some cases, very, very different interpretations of what Jesus would have done. So I'll ask you to consider this text along with a simple question. In this scenario, what would Jesus do? What do you think? You've seen all that people are suggesting. If Jesus were here, do you think that he would join in a peaceful protest? Or do you think he would be ministering to the families of dead civilians? Would he be campaigning for change down at City Hall? Would he be with the families of dead police officers who themselves were unjustly killed during the riots? Or would he simply work elsewhere, one issue removed, delivering groceries to at-risk quarantine people? What do you think? Maybe, maybe he would do all of those things. I don't know. But... According to the text, I'll tell you what he wouldn't do. He wouldn't do nothing. He wouldn't see all of this and respond with a movie marathon, would he? If you've read a whiff of Luke, you know this. Jesus' ministry was years of wading into messy situations followed by death. So I think that's our application here. Our command as disciples is in faith to walk towards the mess. And I won't be very prescriptive here, except to ask you to consider if you are doing that, are you doing it in love? And you might think you are, but I would ask you to just say this. 
if you're clenching your fist as you're hitting enter on your keyboard in social media, you might not be doing it in love. So if you'd like to move forward with something like this, I will not be terribly prescriptive, but I would ask you to consider, start by praying. And beyond that, try not to live in a vacuum. And it's easy because most of us are still generally at home. So talk to a few people, especially, I might add, people who think differently than you. Maybe an elder. The point is, you'll know you're on to something good when it begins to feel like death. Because that's what crucifixion is. That's the call in messes like this. Don't be afraid to move towards it. And then keep doing that. Don't get tired of the mess and get nostalgic and tune off everything and just go live in the mountains. Jesus came down off of the mountain after revealing his glory just a few chapters ago. And then he got right to work serving people. And if we aren't fully devoted to that, we can't be disciples of Jesus. If we don't crucify our lives, our pet sins and our little pet dreams, if we leave them even a little bit alive, something for us much worse than crucifixion lies ahead. Let me read the next few verses, and we'll take a look at that. Verses 28 through 33. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out with to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes again and with, against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So the third thing that Jesus' disciples must do is to know that holding on to anything will cost you everything. Now Jesus has set the scene a little in a somewhat confusing way. He's given us two kind of large illustrations here. And I think they do both mean about the same thing. And what it means is this, that a job partially done is in God's economy, ultimately a failure. So let's look at the construction example first. Have you ever seen an abandoned construction project? Not because of quarantine. (laughs) I mean, a project that was sloppily handled and goes belly up. It's an embarrassment. (laughs) Verse 29 and 30, maybe people were excited. There's going to be a nice restaurant, and they all mock it. It's no good. It's If it's a bank, you can't get money from it. If it's a home, you can't live there. If it's a restaurant, 
You can't get food. It fails. You can't even live there. Maybe the walls aren't completed. Here's the point. You don't get a B minus. It's pass or fail. That's what Jesus is saying happens to people who kind of follow him. They fail. Same thing with the war example in verses 31 and 32. Look there for a moment. Think about it. If the king doesn't plan out a war, that's not a good idea as it is. But if he's clearly unmatched and he doesn't work out the details or he doesn't surrender completely, does he kind of lose? No. He loses everything. Jesus is simply showing us that if you don't follow him completely, you are a completely failed disciple. And here's the worst part. All are going to see it and mock. All. Even the non-believers. Does that sound bad? I mean, you ever seen a, a megachurch pastor just cover up a scandal and they come crashing down? Everybody makes fun of it. And it's so hard because you might be thinking, we're the good guys. That's hard to hear, the mockery, but it is the truth. But I want to tell you, and I want to remind you of why this is so important for Jesus to say to the crowds. Consider that expedition example from earlier. Consider that dangerous mission. But say the guide is afraid of your reaction. So he says, pack light. It's going to be fun. And invite all your friends. That guide is not going to be a guide for very long. And you're going to be dead. And he lied to you. Jesus knows exactly what's coming. It's like he went first. It's like he's God or something. (laughs) He's being very honest with us today. And so I'd like you to be honest with yourself. What? is the state of your spiritual building this morning. Are you going to be fully constructed at death? Are you going to be half built? Consider a few examples. Maybe maybe you never quite submitted your dreams to God when you were became a Christian, and now you're struggling to prefer him over marriage, or a comfortable life. You said yes at the altar, and now you're trying to work out the details halfway up the mountain when the snow is hitting you in the face. Or say your family is quarantined, even right now. You know, you're struggling to just prefer people. You never quite put your self-comfort to death, and now you're trapped together, and you want to get out because you realize that might make things really easy. Or maybe, let's let's move it outwards to how we witness to people. Maybe you've been guilty of not counting other people, not telling them to count the cost. You know, maybe in a fever pitch to convert as many people as possible, maybe you 
kind of tend to leave out or minimize the part where Jesus calls you to die. And then when life gets hard, the person comes back to you and they say, wait, this? And you you realize you've failed them tremendously. Or maybe like me, you got baptized on a whim. And hey, maybe you've made a decent recovery, but those years of confusion still will kind of pop up every now and then. And sometimes you just wonder in the back of your head, am I really saved? Friends, some of us are in danger with a trajectory of a failure to crucify. We are in danger of finishing our lives half built. And maybe the mockery has already crept in for you. And if that's you, may I suggest that your response to that mockery is to be humbled. You know what? I'm going to start. Could my parents have done a better job of raising me? Sure. Could my church have maybe been a little bit more clear? Yeah. But who was ultimately at fault during my baptism? I was. Me. I had a Bible. I'm an American. You know how easy it is to get one? And I mean, as a kindergartner, the teachers would send me to go read with the second graders. I was good. <laughs> I could have picked up my Bible years ago and begged God to change me and fully committed everything. And I could have saved myself so much trouble, but I didn't. And how about you? Look, I know that the troubles of your life aren't all your fault. I get that. I know sin is real, and I know it's hurt many of us. But I can't ignore this fact from this text. The real reason why the Christian life is so hard for many of us right now is simply because we really don't like Jesus that much. We just don't think he's that great. And then when our faith crumbles and we fail to crucify our lives and people mock us, We have the audacity to call that persecution. You know, I get it. Sometimes we are being persecuted, but sometimes people are just seeing through our facades. And we need to own that, don't we? Is there hope for people like that? Yeah, there is. The hope is found in the one, the only one worth preferring above all else. In our successes, in our commitments, and in our failures. Our hope is that the narrow door, so to speak, 
is so narrow that Jesus alone was the one who fit through it. He went first. Jesus' total allegiance, total preference for God is the reason why we not only are spared and why we can be spared, but why we can be useful. And if you doubt that, I'd like to ask you to look for a moment at the failures of Jesus' disciples. I mean, they said after this, Lord, we'll follow you to death. And what did they do? They ran away. But they were restored. And if you read history, they finished their mission. That's why we're here today. And look at the Apostle Paul. He was killing Christians. He was having them put to death. And he thought that he was pleasing God. But he was restored. And boy, did he finish his mission. That's the way. It's through restoration, success or failure to the half-built buildings. Be restored and keep moving. Let me close with the last two verses. Because it really is that straightforward. Verses 34 and 35. Jesus closes with this. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Friends, here's the conclusion if it wasn't loud enough. Jesus' way is the only way to God. This is not a lesson on spices. Jesus is talking about dead religion. He's talking about those religious elites who he's just rejected. They are like salt without saltiness. No use. And so it must be thrown away. It must be completely rejected. And so Jesus is saying to the crowds, don't follow those guys. Follow me. But if you're not all in, you might as well stop now. If you're just ready to give up and be done with it, you can't fake it. Jesus will not be fooled. Your life will be wasted on on half-truth and partial allegiance. And the worst part is that it won't end with mockery from people over your fake spiritual life. That'll be the beginning. And the end will be you thrown out by Jesus. I mean, passages like Matthew 7 come to mind, if you've ever read that, where where people on the day of judgment stand before Jesus and they say, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. These are the church people he's talking to. People who are calling him Lord. Not simply the raging atheist. And as we begin to close, I want you to compare those two types of rejection. Compare the rejection of the Lord to the rejection of maybe a a family member for you wanting to go on a missions trip. Which one is worse? Or compare the the difficulty 
of making a habit of training up your child to listen to you. Compare that pain, because it's painful, with the Lord saying, I don't know who you are. Which one is worse? Which one is more long-lasting? And here's the bottom line of this choice. You have to choose. You can't hide from this, even in quarantine. You have to choose. Christ will accept no B pluses, pass or fail. And our passing is dependent on if we're going to be trusting in him. Now, if you're trusting Christ, and this encourages you all the more, and the Lord is just encouraging you and pointing out other ways you can crucify things that are slowing down your walk, good. But if you're unsure, I want you to know that your hope is this. It doesn't matter what family you came from, and it doesn't matter if you're married, unmarried, if you have kids or no kids. None of those things have to define you. Jesus is the preference that you want, and he is not calling you to an easy life. But he is the only one who is calling you to life at all, and he's calling you to a much better one. And so if you've simply lost sight of that call this morning, or even in this season, be humbled. It's all right. The Lord is quick to restore. But don't continue to prefer yourself so much that you're just perpetually focused on whether you're succeeding or failing. No, for every look at your own sin, take 10 looks at Christ. I'd like to do something a little different this morning. We're going to transition back to to Allie. I'd like us to just take a few minutes and silently meditate on what Jesus is actually calling us to do. So bow your heads with me, and I'll transition us to a time of, of worship. <laughs> 